third time he's visited and we've taken his blessing here um, at St. Mary's. And I think uh, I'm very always very excited to see Pilgrim George because um, he reminds me, maybe I'm going to embarrass you a little bit, so if you... Uh, he reminds me of like our great Coptic saints. Um, I could name a few, like uh, like Ember Wais. You guys know the story of Ember Wais, or like Ember Wais. I think if you think about the life of Ember Ember Wais, like very similar kind of life of prayer, life of dedication to God, or like a, a saint we just celebrated two days ago was, uh, or maybe it was yesterday. No, it was two day, or three days ago. I can't remember. It's already the new year and I can't. But, uh, Amba Barsoum maybe you've heard of the, that saint. I think those saints, those are like, uh, like when I see Pilgrim George, I think of this as like a modern day, like, uh, the saints of, uh, so it's a big blessing that we have him here with us to learn from his experience. One thing I always notice is, notice the joy and the expression that is in his heart is like a manifestation of God's love. So we're very blessed and honored to have him here. We ask him to remember us in, in his prayers, and we're very blessed to, or very excited to hear what the Holy Spirit um, has to has to say today. Could we take this away? Put this in front. My brothers and sisters in Christ, the peace of Jesus be with you. I thank the Lord for getting us together tonight, here again. I always feel it's a privilege to share with you. And I know God has something for each of us tonight. He knows our needs, he knows where we're at, and he wants to speak to our hearts. So let's begin with a prayer. In the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Father in heaven, we thank you for gathering us tonight as your children here in this holy place. We thank you for a gift of faith, for our baptism, and for the power of your Holy Spirit working in our hearts. And we invite you, Lord, to be here with us to teach us the truth of your love for us, to set us free from all the fears of the world. We thank you that you have allowed us to know Jesus as our Lord and Savior, our healer and deliverer, the way, the truth, and the life, the Alpha and the Omega. Lord Jesus, help us now. Open the ears of our hearts and the eyes of our minds to know your love, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. Mary, our mother, Theotokos, place the mantle of your love around us You are our mother and we are your children. Gather us around your son, Jesus. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God. Amen. Well, I'm happy to see all the young people here today. 
Some of you I know, others I don't. But God knows each one of you, and that's what's important. In the world, we want to be known by other people, especially important people. But that's not the way it is in the kingdom of God. In God's kingdom, the least is the most important. The child, the humble one, the weakest one, is God's favorite. And that's what Jesus showed us becoming and dying on the cross. He became the weakest of all, the most rejected. To show us, that doesn't mean God doesn't love us. The Father loved Jesus on the cross because he was saving his people. He was offering his life as a sacrifice for our sins. The topic tonight is the holiness of God. And I notice on your screen the word holiness. Holiness adorns your house, O Lord. The Lord gave me this theme to share with you and and with myself. We need to reflect on the holiness of God in order to be who God wants us to be. But before I begin, I would like to briefly summarize the message of salvation. We can never reflect on the gift of God's love to us enough. And sometimes we might get caught up in all kinds of other things in our faith. Look how many articles of the creed there are we believe in, or our history, or our saints, (laughs) or our liturgy. But once in a while, it's important to just clearly, simply, in a few words, lay out the whole purpose of all of this church and Christian life. So what if I ask you, what is the purpose of your life? What would you say? Why are you here on earth? Why did God create you in this time and place and put you here in Chicago? There's many possible answers, but I think the one answer that summarizes everything is to get to heaven. If we live our lives on earth and don't get to heaven, we have failed. (laughs) Our whole life, no matter how many years we lived, how much money we made, how important our name became, doesn't matter. If we don't get to heaven when we die, our life was wasted. God created us in vain. We failed to achieve our purpose. Now, what one thing can stop us from getting to heaven? To get to heaven, we have to be holy. And holy means without sin. Sin is the only thing that will prevent us from being with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all eternity. 
Now, how do we get rid of sin? Is the next question. There's only one way. Through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We must be immersed into his death, resurrection, in order to have our sins taken away by his blood and to become holy and able to be in God's presence. That's the simple gospel. (laughs) The purpose of our life is to get to heaven. The only thing that could prevent it is sin, and the only way to deal with sin is through Jesus Christ. Do you agree, Father? (laughs) Does everyone agree? Put up your hand. (laughs) Okay. That's what it's all about. Now, that's simple, but it's not easy. (laughs) It'll be a struggle. It's a battle. And we have three enemies. The world, the flesh, and the devil. The world attracts us with all kinds of glitter, with promise of ease and security and happiness. The flesh wants to be satisfied. And the devil doesn't want us to get to heaven. His whole purpose is to distract us and derail us. So it's a struggle. It's a battle. But Jesus came to be with us, to walk with us, to help us. And he sent the Holy Spirit to be our counselor, our advocate, our comforter, and help us on the way. So let's begin now talking about the holiness of God. When I thought about this year's topic, I thought, how can I talk about the holiness of God? I mean, that's too far removed from any words that human beings can say. Even the angels... (laughs) are speechless before the presence of God. Do you remember the scene in Isaiah chapter 6? Isaiah sees the seraphim, angels, in God's presence. What can they say? Only one word. Holy, holy, holy. So what could a human being possibly say? Maybe we should just fall down, (laughs) worship God, and say, holy, holy, holy. That would be the talk. (laughs) That would be what it's all about. So tonight I want to look at three people who experience the holiness of God. Two in the Old Testament and one in the New. I want to look at Isaiah. I want to look at Moses. And I want to look at St. Peter. We just sang about Peter in the waves. But Peter experienced the holiness of God in a unique way. Jesus didn't come like he did to Moses or Elijah. He came as a simple human being, a teacher, a rabbi, and presented himself as a man. So God contained his holiness in his human 
flesh. Let's look first at Isaiah chapter 6. In the year of King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet. And with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice in him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. Maybe some translations say incense. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, which he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin forgiven. There's the holiness of God, the one thing that can prevent one from being in God's presence is sin, and there is the redemption from sin, through the burning coal representing Christ. He took it from the altar of Holocaust, which was the cross was the altar upon which the sacrifice was offered by Jesus and touched his lips. The lips represent the heart because the lips speak what is in the heart. Jesus said it's what comes from the heart that either shows us to be right or to be evil. (laughs) Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So cleansing the lips with the blood of the sacrifice enables Isaiah, who feels in the presence of God his weakness, his sinfulness, And his being a creature. Just imagine Isaiah, who has been created, is in the presence of the creator of the universe. There's going to be a sense of unworthiness and awe and trembling. The one who is God and the human being who isn't, (laughs) except God created him. So this is Isaiah's experience of God that began his life. Now let's go into uh, St. Peter, 
in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11, something similar happens. Peter's not going to have a vision of heaven. Now, you might think we should go to the Mount Tabor, to the Transfiguration, where Jesus does reveal his glory, his divinity. But no, we're going to go to the place where Peter, just from a catch of fish, senses he's in the presence of the Almighty. When the people pressed upon him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, that's Peter, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had ceased speaking, he said to Peter, Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a great shoal of fish. And as their nets were breaking, they beckoned to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats, so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at the knees of Jesus, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he was astonished, and all that were with him at the catch of fish which they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. Henceforth you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Now, you say, well, what caused, just because they caught a lot of fish, Peter to sense his unworthiness. Somehow, he realized this was no ordinary catch of fish. Now, he knew fishing. (laughs) That was his whole life. He knew what kinds of catches he had in the past. But this gave him a sense that here was someone way beyond his understanding. Here was the Lord, the creator of the fish, the sea, the earth, and the heavens. And so he experienced the same thing Isaiah did, having the vision of God in heaven. Now God has come to earth, and he reveals himself in such a simple way. A large catch of fish. And what does he say to Peter? Do not be afraid. This is an invitation to come into God's holiness. To leave his nets, his fishing, his trade, his family, 
and follow Jesus. This is the basis of Peter's call to follow. What was Jesus inviting Peter to do? He didn't invite him to come and see a new church, a new faith, a new system of belief, a new moral code. He just said, follow me. He didn't explain it. He didn't lay out how much many difficulties would come in Peter's life. All he said was, walk with me. And what he really meant was, walk with me to Calvary, where I will lay down my life as a sacrifice on the cross. He's inviting Peter and us to follow Jesus to the cross. Because there we will be redeemed. There we will have our sins washed away. There we will become holy. And then we can see the glory of God. And this is really what we do when we say the Our Father. Jesus taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Which means, may your name be holy. May your name be honored on earth as it is in heaven by the angels, by the seraphim, by the saints. This is the whole purpose of being called, chosen, set apart, and that's what holy means, set apart from the world. So that we might worship the Father in spirit and in truth. If you remember the scene of Jesus with the woman at the well in Samaria, she was questioning where we should worship, in what temple, on the Mount of Gerizim or in Jerusalem. And Jesus said, the Father desires those who worship him in spirit, which is the Holy Spirit, and in truth, which is Jesus, who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So Peter and all of us are invited to follow Jesus to the cross so that we might worship him with, as he did with the Father. Very simple, very clear. <clears throat> what is this kingdom which Jesus says, Hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. The kingdom is where God is worshipped properly. And that happens primarily in the heart of Jesus. Because Jesus is completely obedient to the Father. So where Jesus is, there is the kingdom. Remember he says to the Pharisees at one time, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Because he's here. Wherever Jesus walks, there is the kingdom. There is the place where God the Father reigns, where he's completely obeyed by his Son and worshipped. 
So, the kingdom now on earth in Jesus and in all those who follow him. Thomas the Apostle experienced this truth after the resurrection. Remember, Thomas didn't believe the apostles when they told him Jesus rose. So a week later, Thomas is with the apostles and Jesus says, come and put your hand into my fingers, the place of the nails. And what does Thomas do? He falls down and says, my Lord and my God. His profession of faith in Jesus as the Son of God, as the Redeemer, as the risen Lord. And so what does Jesus say to Peter? Do not be afraid. What did Peter have to fear? (laughs) Well, if you had a call to leave everything that you're used to, you might be afraid. You might not have a bed to sleep in, or food, or friends, or a job, or whatever. But Jesus says, don't be afraid. I will take care of you. And this is experiencing God's love for you. That's what takes away fear. The experience of having a father, a heavenly father, who has your best interest at heart. The pa- uh, Peter and the other apostles here left everything. Family, friends, work, their hometown. And they let their hearts be drawn by the fire of God's love in Jesus' heart. Hebrews 12.29 says, Our God is a consuming fire. Remember also Jesus said, I have come to cast fire upon the earth. That didn't mean he was going to cause lightning to strike or a forest fire. He's talking about the fire of the Holy Spirit. Remember on Pentecost in second chapter of Acts, the Holy Spirit came in tongues of fire. So fire is this sign of God's love. So when Jesus says to Peter, don't be afraid, he's saying that he will provide. And Peter, all he knew, he didn't know philosophy or theology or he didn't know the, uh, like the rabbis, the Torah and so forth. But he was promised that he would still be catching men. <laughs> No longer fish, no longer out on the waves and cold water, but he would still be gathering now the the hearts of God's people. And that would be a harder task, actually, than catching fish. And the amazing thing is that Peter and the other apostles took this invitation as we say 
They took the bait hook, line, and sinker. <laughs> they didn't just take a little nibble. They swallowed the whole thing. They left everything and followed Jesus. So this was the beginning of the apostles becoming holy because they were separated from their past and the beginning to experience this holiness of God. They were set apart, separated from the world and their former way of life by the Holy Trinity, by the invitation of Jesus, for this special mission, the mission of praising God and worshiping him in spirit and truth. They're not perfect yet, but they've been chosen and set apart so they can begin to grow in holiness. Now let's look at Moses. Go back to the Old Testament. Moses experienced God's holiness in Exodus chapter 3, verses 1 to 22. Moses, remember, lived in Egypt, and God called him to deliver his people. And this was the vision God gave him when he first spoke to Moses out in the desert. And Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire, out of the midst of the bush. And he looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why the bush is not burnt. And when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I, Then he said, Do not come near. Put off your shoes from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. This fire, again, is not some kind of earthly fire or light from an electric bulb or LED or whatever. This Fire is emanating from the heart of God. But God allowed it to be experienced by Moses in the flesh. And so he manifested, God manifested his glory. So Moses said, I must go over and look at this remarkable sight and see why the bush is not burned. So the miracle here is that creation is not destroyed by God's coming, by the holiness of God. This image is also used of Mary, the mother of God. She is the one who had the burning fire of God in her when she conceived Jesus, but she was not consumed. Because God doesn't destroy his creation. 
but he transforms it. This fire changes us to be who God wants us to be. And Moses is asked to remove his sandals. Just like when you go into your house, you remove your shoes because you're no longer out in the world. You're in a safe place. (laughs) You don't have to worry about rocks and glass and all the things that can happen to your feet out in the world. In the kingdom of God, there's nothing to harm you. Isaiah says the wolf will lie down with the lamb and they won't, one won't be devoured by the other. So this is a sign of the kingdom being present. Moses took off his sandals and he says, hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. That's the natural response when man encounters the holiness of God to be afraid. He has that sense of unworthiness and the sense of, wow, what's going to happen next? (laughs) And this becomes the basis of God's call then to choose his servant and to send him on a mission. Moses' mission would be to set the people free and to bring them out to the desert where they could worship God as free people. They could not worship the true God in Egypt because they were slaves. They were in bondage. And a slave cannot worship God. They have to be set free. So that's what happened when they passed through the Red Sea and they're out in the desert. Now, they're able to worship God as he wants. So with Isaiah, it was the burning coal taken from the altar. With Peter, it was abandoning his boats and fishing nets which signified his reliance on his old life, old way of life. And with each of us, there's something we have to leave or give up. Person, place, thing, some attachment to anything less than God. So to worship God, we have to be set free from all our attachments, bondages, sins. Jesus said in Matthew 6.24, no one can serve two masters. You choose one and hate the other. Love the one and reject the other. So we can't sit on the fence. (laughs) One foot in the kingdom of the world, one foot in the kingdom of God. You cannot serve God and mammon. Mammon is everything that is other than God. Because everything else other than God is created, inferior to God. At this point, I'd like to inject a personal reference to illustrate something about 
the holiness of God. I've never shared this with anyone. It happened to me 30 years ago, October 1988. I was walking with my little mule from Pittsburgh to Mexico City. It was a six-month walk. And I had this dream one night. Now, normally I don't pay attention to dreams. They don't have any particular meaning. But this one struck me as worth noting. So I wrote it down in my journal. And then in this dream, I saw a priest saying Mass to a small group of devout worshipers. And all of a sudden, this priest fell down on his knees and he held up his maniple. This is just a homemade maniple. This is a garment that the priest, deacon, and subdeacons wear at Mass. And he crawled out, this maniple, M-A-N-I-P-L-E, cannot protect us from the holiness of God. We cannot hide behind this maniple. Now, I thought, well, what's, what's the meaning of that? Well, the maniple is from, here's the prayer that is said while the minister puts it on. It, it tells us something about what it is. May I deserve, O Lord, to bear the maniple of sorrow and weeping in order that I may joyfully receive the reward of my living and working. So it has to do with repentance. And apparently it was originally to dry the tears of the priest. There was a famous 18th century Catholic priest, St. Alphonsus Liguri, who said this, It is well known that the maniple is for the purpose of wiping away the tears that flow from the eyes of the priest, for in former times priests wept continuously during the celebration of the Mass. So the priest, aware of the holiness of God, experiencing his sinfulness, unworthiness, is weeping. So, the point seemed to be that even this repentance was insufficient to protect us from the holiness of God. That we were going to be changed and transformed by this intimate encounter with the Holy Trinity. I thought of this in terms of the transfiguration on Mount Tabor, where the Peter, James, and John experienced the holiness of they didn't have maniples to hold up, but the icons show them like shielding their eyes. It was too much for their human nature. But nothing can do this. Nothing can protect us except God's grace. God has to protect us, as it were, from himself. Otherwise, our senses would be annihilated. But we're called to wear the sign of dedication to God. When we were baptized, we were signed with the cross. In um, Ezekiel, 
God told Ezekiel in chapter 9, verse 4, Go through the city of Jerusalem and put a mark upon the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. In other words, his faithful people were mourning and sighing and groaning over the sins of the world that they had to live in. And so... My translation says they were put a mark on them. I think the Hebrew says put a towel on them. It would be, the towel is the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. Like put an X on them. In the Roman alphabet, X is the last word. But it's a sign that these are chosen out of the world because they are willing to mourn their sins. And... That's the sign that we belong to the Lord. So the message of my dream seems to be it's not enough to wear the maniple. It's not enough to have the sign of the cross. It's not enough to observe external practices, going to church and so forth. What makes us holy and qualifies us for worship of the Lord is repentance and sorrow for sin. So from the time of Moses in the burning bush through Isaiah in his vision of the temple all the way up to New Testament times Hebrews chapter 12 verse 28 says we should offer worship pleasing to God in reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. That's Hebrews twelve twenty eight. So how does this holiness impact our daily lives? We have to live in the world full of sin, darkness, going about our business, raising children, going to work. What does God expect of us? How are we going to live in the world without becoming a part of its values and goals, which are opposed to the kingdom of God? Well, basically, it's only by God's grace preserving us. And here we need the help of the Holy Spirit. And we find then with Jesus that holiness in the New Testament is a person. It's not just who God is, it's one of the three persons of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. When Jesus left, he said, I will send you the Holy Spirit. Wait in Jerusalem till he comes. So how do we move about in the world? I think first we have to realize that Satan, the liar, is trying to distract us. We have to know where the battle lines are drawn. The basic philosophy of the world is the same as it was in the Garden of Eden where Satan presented Adam and Eve with the lie, saying, God made a mistake when he set up the order in the universe. 
He does not expect man to follow his plan. Man is free to do whatever he pleases. He can refashion everything in any way he chooses, from the raw materials of the earth to the DNA structure of the human cell. Nothing is forbidden to him. It is up to man to make paradise on earth through his own skills and scientific knowledge. Does that sound familiar? Is that the kind of world we live in? I think it is. But that's Satan's lie. Then we have to recognize the false idols that are set up in the world. These are basically three. Money, power, and status. First, money. The world in rebellion against the Creator says, blessed are the rich, (laughs) because they can do whatever they want. Thus, for them, education is just about acquiring tools that will enable them to earn lots of money so they can spend it on their passions. And that's why in 1 John 5, 21, he says, keep yourselves from idols. The next idol is power. For having money gives one the ability to do what he wants, when he wants, where he wants, with whomever he wants. That's what the world thinks is freedom. Just the opposite of freedom that Jesus gives. The freedom that Jesus gives is the freedom to do the will of the Father, not one's own selfish, self-centered desires. Some You often hear this phrase, if you have your health, you have everything. That's not a scriptural principle. That's a worldly principle. Rather, we should say, if you have faith in Jesus, you have everything. Because you could have lose your health. You could be very ill, suffering from cancer or whatever. But your faith will give you peace and bring you through. And finally, the last idol is status. Wanting other people to think well of one. And therefore, saying and doing things that will get the approval and esteem of our neighbors. Instead of trying to please God, we're trying to please man. These are the temptations which we face in the world. So what does the scripture advise for us? Let's turn to first, I mean, second Corinthians chapter six to see Paul's admonitions to the Corinthians. Verses 14 through 7, verse 1. 2 Corinthians six fourteen. Do not be mismated with unbelievers. And now there's five contrasts here. First, believers and unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and iniquity? That's the second contrast. Third contrast, what fellowship has light with darkness? The kingdom of God is light, the kingdom of the world is darkness. What accord has Christ with Belial or Satan? Or what 
has a believer in common with an unbeliever. That goes back to the first one. And the fifth one, what agreement has the temple of God with idols? The world is a temple filled with false gods. That's why, you know, as Christians, we can't just say we believe in God because the world believes in gods (laughs) with a small g. We believe in the Trinity. We believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We don't believe in all the false gods that are in the temple of the world. He says, For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will live in them and move among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Therefore, come out from them and be separated from them. Now, it doesn't mean necessarily physically separated, but it means you have to distinguish between the world and the kingdom. Maybe sometimes you have to physically separate yourself, but most of the time you have to move in the world. But touch nothing unclean. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. So the promise is God will accept us as his children if we are willing to separate and distinguish ourselves from the world of darkness. Chapter 7, verse 1. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit and make holiness perfect in the fear of God. So remember that we are his temple He dwells in us. He is our Father. We are his children. That's the way we resist the pull towards darkness and compromise and indifference, assimilation, infidelity. Jesus says in Revelation 21.6, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is the Almighty, Pantocrator, Revelation 21.22. He says he will be our father and we shall be his children. What does it mean? He says in Revelation 7, 15, To the thirsty I will give a gift from the spring of life-giving water. He repeats that in Revelation 21, 6. So how do we, his children, show that we are thirsty? By weeping and mourning over our sins and the sins of the world. Back to Ezekiel 9.4. By being in a group that has been slain because they bore witness to the word of God, Revelation 6.9. Another way of saying it, we have washed our robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb, Revelation 7.14. And... We are standing before the throne of the Lamb holding palm branches in our hands. Revelation 7, 9. That's the reward of the righteous. What about the reward of the wicked? We don't want to be among them, but we should know what lies in store for them. 
And in Revelation 21.8, John calls them these names. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the polluted, as for murderers, fornicators, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their lot shall be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. We don't want to end up there, do we? (laughs) No, thank you. So, God wants us to be a holy people. We must walk through the evil and ugliness of the world around but not betray the Lord of truth and beauty and goodness who dwells within us. Let us keep a clear distinction between them and us by opening our hearts to God's holiness and cry out with Isaiah, Behold, I am unclean. With David, what is man that you should care for him? With Simeon, Lord, now you can dismiss your servant. With Peter, Lord, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. With Thomas, my Lord and my God. And with Francis of Assisi, God, you are everything, and I am nothing. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that you have called us, chosen us, anointed us with your love, with your Holy Spirit. And we trust that you will preserve us from the world that tries to take us from your loving hands. And we ask your mercy upon each of us gathered here tonight, our families, those who are watching live stream, and those we will share our lives with in the coming days. We trust, Lord, that you and our hearts will preserve us from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Only you can get us safely through the trials of this life. But we desire, Lord, to keep following you through all the difficulties and trials until you bring us safely home to the Father's house. Glory be to the Father, to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, now and forever, one God. Amen. We uh, thank uh, Pilgrim George so much for the inspiring words. I'll just maybe say two things that uh, I uh, I learned. Uh, I mean, there was many things, but the two uh, two main things. One was uh, the burning bush. It's going to be quick. You don't. Have to. The burning bush was uh, not consumed. You know, it was the idea that holiness doesn't um, destroy you. The idea that holiness actually transforms you and completes you. I thought that's a very uh, powerful concept. Uh, the other one was uh, the prayer for tears, as that was mentioned several times. The cry for holiness. I think we need to think about that in our in our daily life. So thank you, thank you, Pilgrim Judge. Uh, we look forward to a special week. I think you're with us the entire yes. weekend, so you'll be joining us for liturgy on Sunday. So 
It'll be a, a great uh, weekend. So, thank you all. Any, yeah, any questions? If anyone has any questions or thoughts.